Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cousineau, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Today, we want to talk about the Gospel of Mark. Now, just to let you know, what we've done in the breeding plan is we've spread out the Gospels throughout the year so that you're never too far away from reading one of the Gospels. I, I think there are some advantages to doing it that way instead of reading all four Gospels at once and then having a very long time before you're in one of the Gospels again. So that's why we've spread things out a little bit, and that's why we're getting to the Gospel of Mark now. So what I want to do today is just give some intro, some background to the Gospel of Mark. And the first thing I want to touch on is that I want, I want you to remember that all of the books of the New Testament were either written by an apostle directly. And, and remember when I say an apostle, I'm talking about somebody who was an eyewitness of Jesus, somebody who directly witnessed Jesus, and they were specially commissioned by him by Jesus. Okay, so all of the books of the New Testament were either written by an apostle directly, so that would include Paul, right, all of Paul's letters, James, Peter, John, and Matthew. They all wrote books of the New Testament. So all of the books were either written by the apostles or by close companions of the apostles. So for example, Luke was not an apostle directly. He was not one of the 12 disciples. He was not somebody who had directly witnessed Jesus, but he was a close companion of the Apostle Paul. Now, what about Mark? Because we know Mark was not one of the apostles either. So who was Mark? Well, first of all, let me, let me say this. You may hear people sometimes talk about how the Gospels may have been originally these anonymous documents. If you've ever heard of Bart Ehrman, he's a, he's a critical scholar. He's a proponent of this theory. He'll say that, you know, the, the titles of the Gospels were added much later after the, effect, after the fact, and they were likely not written by eyewitnesses. But there is no evidence for that at all. The earliest Christian writings that we have outside of the, the New Testament they are completely unanimous and unambiguous about who wrote the four Gospels. There's no dispute amongst the early Christians. And there's no evidence that the Gospels were ever anonymous documents. No anonymous copies exist. Okay, so these books were circulating within the lifetime of eyewitnesses of Jesus they knew who these authors of the Gospels were. So these documents wouldn't have spread without the author having some sort of credibility. There were eyewitnesses still alive so they could verify or, or disagree with what was being said. Now going back to Mark, what do we know specifically about his Gospel? Well, with Mark's Gospel, we have records going all the way back to Papias. Now who was he? He was actually somebody taught by the Apostle John himself. That's pretty cool, right? 
Papias likely lived sometime around 60 to about 130 AD. So the later part of the first century and early part of the second century. And again, Papias was taught by the apostle John himself. And Papias said this, Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately everything he remembered. He goes on and says, Mark neither heard the Lord nor nor followed him, but he followed Peter. Now, remember we said the books of the New Testament were either written directly by an apostle or by a close companion of an apostle. Well, Mark, based on the records that we have, it seems was a close companion of Peter, the apostle Peter. Now, what does scripture tell us about Mark? That's what some of the, the other records tell us about Mark, but what does scripture itself say? Well, in 1 Peter 5.13, Peter calls Mark his son. Now, obviously, he's not talking in a literal sense. He's talking in a spiritual sense that Mark is his spiritual son. But it's pretty clear that Peter and Mark were indeed close companions. And you could say that, that Mark was a disciple of Peter. Now, we also know from Colossians 4.10 that he was a cousin of Barnabas. And in the book of Acts... Mark kind of becomes a a source of disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. So if you remember the story, Mark went with Paul and Barnabas on the the very first part of their first missionary journey. But But then Mark left them. So in Acts 13, it says Paul and Barnabas had John, also called Mark, with them to assist them. But then in Acts 13 verse 13 it says John or Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so Mark was with them for a little bit but then he kind of abandoned them. Then you fast forward to chapter 15 starting in verse 37. It says now Barnabas wanted to take with them with him and, and Paul John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. So Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John or Mark, with them on this missionary journey. But Paul said no. Paul was like, look, we took this guy before and he deserted us. I'm not taking him again. And this dispute caused Paul and Barnabas to split. Okay, now, Mark eventually won Paul's favor back. We know that from 2 Timothy. Remember, that was Paul's final letter. In 2 Timothy, Paul actually calls for Mark to come to him. And he says that Mark is very useful to my ministry. So again, what do we know about Mark? We know he's a a cousin of Barnabas. He's a, a close companion of the Apostle Peter. He went on some missionary journeys briefly with Paul and Barnabas, and then again with just Barnabas. And we have early sources outside of the New Testament attesting to the fact that Mark is the author of this gospel. I do also want to clarify, you've heard me say it already, but Mark is also known by the name John as well. It was pretty common for people in these times to have two different names. So you'll often see him in scripture referred to as John, also called Mark, or just as Mark. So when did Mark write his gospel? Now, many people will say that he wrote it in the mid to late 60s AD, and they'll say that he's writing to suffering Christians 
under the reign of Emperor Nero. And Emperor Nero, he started his reign in 64 AD. So they would say mid to late 60s for the the date of this gospel. But there's good evidence that it, it may have actually been sooner than that. And the argument goes like this. So the book of Acts, if you remember, it ends abruptly with Paul still alive, still in prison. Why is that? Well, probably because Paul was still alive when it was written. He was probably still in prison. So the book of Acts, in order for that to be true, would have had to have been written sometime around 62 AD when Paul was still in prison, still alive. And we know that Luke's gospel was written before the book of Acts. So that puts Luke's gospel in the early 60s AD at least. And we know that Luke likely used Mark's gospel as a source for his writing. So that puts Mark's gospel at least in the early to mid-50s AD. And it, it really could have been even sooner than that. But regardless of the exact date of this gospel, it was written well within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Okay, So don't believe the people who try to claim that these gospels were written hundreds of years after the fact, after Jesus lived. That is not the case whatsoever. Now, a few general notes about this gospel. It was likely written from Rome. Mark was likely in Rome, and he's writing to a predominantly non-Jewish audience. And because of that, he he focuses more on the actions of Jesus. Okay, you're going to see he doesn't focus on the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures as much as Matthew did. Because remember, Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. So for them, the fulfillment of scripture was huge. But because Mark is writing to a more Roman audience, he's going to focus more on Jesus' actions. And with that, Mark's gospel is very fast-paced. It's sort of episodic, if you want to say. It contains individual stories. It's not necessarily one flowing chronological story. He has all these little snippets, these little episodes of Jesus's life. So sometimes it feels like it jumps around quite a bit, but he's including different stories that are representative of Jesus's life. And he really focuses on Jesus as a suffering servant. Remember, he's likely writing to people facing persecution of some sort. So he he reminds them that even Jesus suffered. He'll say things like, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10.45. Now, the first eight chapters of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, they focus more on who Jesus is. And then the second half of the book, chapters 9 through 16, focus really on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem and his death and resurrection. So a fairly basic structure, but again, it does feel like it it jumps around at times with these different episodes of Jesus's life. Now, one interesting thing to note, you're going to see that many times in the book of Mark, after Jesus heals someone or performs some kind of miracle, oftentimes he says something along the lines of, see to it that you tell no one about this. Why is that? That seems kind of weird, right? Why wouldn't Jesus want people to to spread the word about him? Well, this is something that's known as the Messianic secret. Okay, the Messianic secret. And just to give you a little background on this, remember the Jews expected a Messiah based on the Old Testament. They, They knew that a Messiah would come eventually. 
And, and they thought it would be somebody who would come and restore Israel. Remember, at the time of Jesus, Israel was under Roman rule. And if you go back even further in history, they had been under the captivity of first the Egyptians, and then it was the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, the Greeks, and, and now the Romans. So it's safe to say that at this point, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they were more than ready for the Messiah to come. And they assumed that the coming of the Messiah meant that Rome would be overthrown and Israel would be restored to a political powerhouse, so to speak. They expected the Messiah to be this powerful political king. So nobody expected a Messiah who would suffer and die. That would be embarrassing. Nobody wanted to to follow a leader who was going to just die. They wanted a, a political ruler who could establish them as a powerhouse once again. So once people started witnessing Jesus's miracles, you can imagine how chaos would ensue. Can you imagine how powerful a political leader would be if he could feed 5,000 people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread? The possibilities would be endless. So why did Jesus want people to keep quiet about many of his miracles? Well, one, because he didn't want people following him for the wrong reasons. Jesus came to do something much, much greater than bring political salvation. Jesus came to save people from their sins. He came to to bring an eternal heavenly kingdom, not restore an earthly one. So he didn't want political zealots following him just for his miracles and, and his power. And he also didn't want Rome to kill him before his appointed time. Because if Rome heard that this powerful, miracle-working ruler had risen up and was threatening their power, Rome would not like that. So what you'll see is Jesus often reveals who he is to his disciples and to people less likely to expect a political revolutionary. So he'll, he'll often, in smaller groups, talk about more directly who he is. But otherwise, he often says to keep quiet. Now, obviously, Jesus today wants the gospel message to be spread, okay? But at this time, it wasn't the right time to spread the news yet. He didn't want false expectations about himself to be spread. It was such a politically charged environment, and people had the wrong expectations about who the Messiah was. Now, you're also going to see that Mark talks a lot about the kingdom of God. You'll see things like the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now that that would have been shocking to a Jewish person. Now, first of all, the kingdom of God refers to God's reign over creation, including his people. And based on the Old Testament, the Jews, of course, believed that God was sovereign, that he was in control over all of creation. But they also believed there would be a future age to come, so to speak, when when God would establish his reign directly on earth. And they thought that this age would be marked by peace and an outpouring of God's spirit and a restoration of the material creation and an end of sin and sickness. And they they longed for this future day when God would enter the world, defeat his enemies once for all, and establish his kingdom on earth. So you can see how it would be shocking 
that Jesus would show up on the scene and say, the kingdom of God is here. It's already here. He proclaims that the kingdom of God is here. He heals sick people. He drives out demons. He forgives sins. He feeds the hungry. These are all signs that the kingdom has come. But what the Jews didn't realize is that the kingdom would come in stages. They thought everything was going to happen at once. So Jesus initiated the kingdom, but it hadn't come in its fullness yet. He's created a way for us to enter the kingdom by repenting of our sins and believing in him. But the fullness of the kingdom has yet to come. So one thing you'll hear Bible scholars use a lot of phrase that you'll hear them use a lot is already, but not yet. Already, not yet. The kingdom has already come, but not yet in its fullness. It's still growing. It's like a mustard seed, as Jesus said. It's the smallest of all seeds to start, but over time it will grow into something bigger than anyone has ever seen before. That's the part that the Jews missed. They thought it would happen all at once, but the kingdom of God has already come in Jesus, just not yet in its fullness. Now, as we wrap up here, I just want to highlight one little episode, so to speak, that that Mark shares about Jesus. And I, I want to give us a little life application to wrap up here because we don't want to just give you head knowledge. We want this head knowledge to lead to a changed life, ultimately, to lead you into a deeper relationship with Christ. So this episode starts in chapter 1, verse 35. It says, And rising very early in the morning, While it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, what I want you to notice here is there are four different verbs describing what Jesus did. It says he rose, and he did that very early, by the way. He rose, he departed, he went, and he prayed. These four verbs strung together show Jesus' deliberateness, his resolve to spend time with his father. Then Mark goes on and says that Peter and some of the disciples find Jesus and they say, everyone's looking for you. There's almost a sense here that they're saying, what are you doing, Jesus? We've got crowds to take care of and, and miracles to do. We're building a following here. Things are happening. There's no time to be alone and pray. What are you thinking? But we see Jesus prioritizing alone time with the Father throughout his ministry. Understand, Jesus was never too busy for time with the Father. So let me ask you, how is your prayer life? Do you see yourself as being too busy to pray and and spend time with God? Because if anybody should have been too busy to spend time with the Father, it should have been Jesus, right? We're talking about the Savior of the world. He was constantly being followed by crowds. And yet, nobody prioritized time alone with the Father like Jesus. So are you too busy to spend time in prayer, to spend quality time with God? Maybe you're even busy with good things. Maybe it's volunteering or or doing things at church. But as Jesus shows us, we need to be before we do. We need to abide in God before we do for him. Because remember, apart from God's power, we have nothing. 
We can do nothing of eternal significance apart from God's power. How do we tap into that power? Through prayer. God uses people on their knees. How can we be too busy for the primary way that God has ordained for his kingdom to advance? The main way that God's kingdom advances is through prayer. So saying that we're too busy for prayer is like saying we're too busy to breathe. We need prayer. We need quality time with God, fellowship with him. That's what you were made for, to have fellowship with God. So understand prayer is not just a means to an end. It's not just a way to to get things. It's an end in itself. It's spending time with your creator. So I want to challenge you, this week especially, make prayer a priority in your life. Set aside a, a regular time and place where you can be alone with God, where you can have some quiet peace and just enjoy being with Jesus, enjoy being with God, and protect that time. And then let that time lead you into praying throughout the day as well. We need we need both. Sometimes people wonder, do I schedule my prayer times? Do I pray throughout the day? The answer is both. I find that when I have my scheduled times, my protected times, that helps me pray then throughout the day. It leads into praying throughout the day. But whatever it looks like exactly for you, I want to challenge you again. Prioritize prayer this week. Because I'm telling you, there is no other single practice that will do more to transform your life. Prioritize prayer. We need prayer. As Mark tells us, the kingdom of God has indeed come. But it will only advance when we make a regular habit of being on our knees in prayer. So let's pray like we never have before. And let's see how God moves.